Let's pray. Father, indeed, great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning, and Father, we, we don't deserve these. <laughs> but you have lavished those on us as a good and gracious, loving Father. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing at Community Bible Fellowship. It is such an honor to be a part, a joy to be a part of, of what you're doing here on this globe. And we do not take this lightly. So, Father, help us to be good stewards. Guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word. And in it, as we learn of your faithfulness to us, and we're reminded of our response that is required. We thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 13. If this is your first Sunday to join us, welcome. We have been journeying through the gospel of Luke, and we talked about this gospel is geographically laid out. In fact, it, it coincides with the second volume, which is the book of Acts. We start with a census from Rome, and we're moving towards Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. It will end there. Acts will begin in Jerusalem, and it ends up in Rome with Paul imprisoned. That's not a mistake, because the focal point is Jerusalem. This is where we're headed. Starting in chapter 9, verse 51, it's the section that Luke is laying out. It's the teachings of Jesus. And, and in these teachings, there's a call to follow. But with that call comes a serious warning. And we've seen that Jesus has cautioned them on matters related to hypocrisy, dangers of worldly distractions, worry, and now we come to the topic of apathy. So in chapter 13, verse 22, then Jesus traveled throughout the towns and villages, teaching and making his way. So there's this progression towards Jerusalem. That's key. This is going to be the hinge. I would argue this section is going to summarize much of what we've already seen and what it means to follow Christ. Heading to Jerusalem is going to be then what is, what is the message that we're to embrace about this Jesus. And, and so this is the focal point. In fact, the Greek is interesting. It's a, uh, there's a reflexive idea in making his way himself towards Jerusalem. It's Jesus who is orchestrating these events, is leading up to this. And it says in 23, someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And so Jesus answered them. And I love this. He never really answers the question. <laughs> Instead, he gives them a warning. Exert every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and start to knock on the door and beg him, Lord, let us in. But he will answer, I don't even know where you've come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence. You, you taught in our streets. But he will reply, and we know who the household owner is, don't we? It, it's Jesus. It's clear, I think, in verses 26 and 27. And he will reply, I don't know where you come from. Go away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, 
Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be thrown out. Then people will come from the east and west, from the north and the south, and take their places at the banquet table in the kingdom of God. But indeed, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. You should have a an outline for the notes uh, in front of you. Uh, I won't quiz you over them, but if you'd like to follow along, it's there for you. As we said, there's this direction, verse 22, that, that's leading us to Jerusalem. The use of the middle voice is clear. And along the way, he's asked this question. And remember, this whole section since chapter 9 is, what does it mean to respond to Jesus? And, and we talked about that's one of the major points of why Luke ever wrote this gospel in the first place. Is what do you do with this Jesus? And they said, Lord, well, will only a few be saved? I wonder if it's because they, they've seen their neighbors who are gathered in the crowd. <laughs> it must be only a few because she's not going, he's not going, right? I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, right? <laughs> and I, I don't know. But Jesus, and, and the question was interesting because in first century Judaism, the thought was that all Israelites will be saved. That was just assumed. In fact, in rabbinic, later rabbinic writings, there's only a few exceptions who will not inherit eternal life if they're Israelis or Jewish, and that is if, if they read heretical books, if they utter charms, or they pronounce incorrectly the holy name, or even pronounce it, period. Those that will exempt you from eternal life. But otherwise, you're in. Jewish, you're in. And, and, and Jesus turns this all upside down, doesn't he, in this section? Because he says in verse 24, exert every effort. Now I'm reading out of the New English translation, the Net Bible. If you have the NIV, it says make every effort. If you have the ESV or the King James, it says strive. The point is, the term is used of athletes that are trying to compete, trying to exercise and, and, and win the goal. Paul uses this term in 1 Timothy 4, train yourselves in godliness. Make every effort. Strive to do so, for with physical training is of some value. I love this verse, right? Whilst some physical training is okay, godliness is valued in every way. I love that verse. Yes, 2 Timothy 4, I fought the good fight. It's the same idea. You need to strive, you need to stress, you need to move. So what is the Lord saying here? Well, he's not saying that works is necessary for salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ephesians 2, it's not by works that you're saved. That's, that's plenty of sections here. So what's he saying? You need to pay careful attention. Take heed. This is serious. Because as we see later in the text, in verse 28, if you don't go through, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is serious stuff. It's similar to your dad as he was sitting in the passenger seat instructing you how to back the car into the garage for the first time. <laughs> oh, be careful. Yeah, to a little, uh, a little left, to the right. Pay attention. Make every effort. That's the idea here. Be careful. And he says, to enter through the door, the narrow door. And, and that phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's an image always of eschatological, that is, end times, blessing of God's 
presence, his realm, his kingdom, and usually associated with a wedding feast. And we're talking where you're going to spend eternity. And the writer, Jesus states, and Luke records, exert every effort. Pay attention. Be on guard. Now think about the analogy that the Lord is using. Notice what he says, through the narrow door. I have 10 points about this, if you're taking notes. <laughs> First, there's only one door. Now, I know we need to be careful making metaphors and analogies walk on all four, but there is only one door. There are not multiple entrances to God. That's why I don't like the bumper sticker, coexist. Yes, right? Jesus stated in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so it's clear. A few months ago, we took our son for his birthday to one of those escape rooms. Have you ever done that? That's very alarming because the clock is ticking. I get so nervous and my OCD comes out and I'm like, I gotta get out of here, right? And so you're trying to find the door that gets you to the next clue and you can't, you know it's, the, you know it's there, but you just can't open the crazy thing, right? And, and because you've got to get through that door in order to solve this puzzle and get out of this room. That's the idea. There's only one door. Secondly, notice that the door is narrow. Entrance is not easy. That's why he's saying, exert every effort. Caution versus recklessness. Alertness versus a nonchalant attitude. A calculated move rather than a flippant approach. And yet we all know individuals, don't we? Who present the gospel. Yeah, yeah, I'll get to that. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. And Jesus says, exert every effort. This is serious business. Also, we can note from the text that everyone knows about the door. In fact, later he says that many are coming to this door. There, there's, there's no hide and seek with this. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Turn to Romans just keep your finger here. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Starting in verse 18. Listen to what Paul states to the church, to the believers residing in Italy. For the wrath of God is revealed in Scripture. Well, yes, it is, but notice what he states from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness because what can be known about God is, watch this, plain to them. Why? Because God has made it plain. The text is clear. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. He goes on to write, For although they know God, they did not glorify Him as God to give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their senseless hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for image resembling mortal human beings, perhaps themselves, 
or birds or four-footed animals, reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, dishonor to their bodies among themselves. I was talking with a former colleague this past week on the importance of, we call this general revelation. That is, God has revealed himself in a general fashion. It's not specific. We're not location, time, and place, particular people, but all individuals that walk this globe, according to Romans 1, understood God's handiwork, his provisions, and his wrath. And so when we come back, there is enough here to condemn just looking at creation. It's no wonder this world would like to turn everything upside down with the created order. We try to pin it to the fall, Genesis 3, but no, it hangs on Genesis 1. We've talked about this. Look at Paul's ethics. Where does he take us? Takes us to Genesis, right? Genesis 1. This is God's created order. Role of men and women. Genesis chapter 1, not Genesis 3. Everyone knows about the door. There's no hide and seek. In fact, another point that we can make about the door, it is only opened, the text tells us, Look at verse 25 for a short time. It says, once the head of the house gets up, he shuts the door. It's a limited time offer. Hebrews 4 states, be careful, today is the day. Do not harden your heart. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you are playing serious games with God. There's a, there's a point when enough is enough. The door is shut. And the text is clear. It states this. When the the householder says, fine, we're going to shut the door. In fact, another point we see is the householder is the one who opens and shuts the door from the inside. We don't have control over the door. It is by grace that it's even open and available. We could argue. Another point about the door, there is no automatic entrance. You don't just waltz in through the door. Luke 5.30, earlier on, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to the disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to, here it is, repentance. The narrow door is clear. It's a submission to God. It's a call to repent. And so there's no automatic entrance. You just don't get to do your own thing. And that leads us to the next point about the door. Failure to enter is not the householder's responsibility. It's a human responsibility. I I mean, I, I, I could tell you, hey, I bought you a brand new convertible Bentley. It's great. Here's the keys. Got them for you right here. After the service come up, I'll give them to you and you'll drive that out of the parking lot and if you don't come up and get the keys it's it's not yours i can give you the gift but what do you do with the gift failure to enter is not the householder's responsibility in fact he's instructed you hasn't he exert every effort pay attention to what's happening here and also we see the closure of the door is irrevocable Isaiah twenty two twenty two says, It will place on the shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and no one shall shut. He shall shut and no one shall open. There are no second chances. 
seems harsh. Well, God has been gracious to provide a door. And another point here is regret will come, not may. It will come when the door is shut. <laughs> we see that with the gnashing and, and weeping, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I had a professor once in my college years who, when the door, when the bell rang for class, he would lock the door. If you weren't in, that's tough. And he usually gave a quiz, <laughs> which was a zero, because you weren't there. There is no five-minute warning. There is no last call for this. Either you're on, you're in, you know? Uh, that's the, the, clear in the text. Also, the householder will not be patronized or persuaded to open the door. One scholar writes, the language expresses the lack of claim that these would-be guests have upon the host. Second Timothy 2 but God's firm foundation stands bearing this inscription, the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Did you see what the householder said? Go back to the text. It says, the door is shut, verse 25, they're knocking. They said, Lord, let us in. He says, I don't know where you come from. And then he says, he repeats that in verse 27, go away from me. Those words are so harsh in rabbinic literature, the idea here is, I don't wish to have anything to do with you. There is a, there's a, a balance here, isn't there, in this whole scene uh, between human responsibility, making every effort, paying attention, coming through the narrow door, guarding our hearts, submitting to the Lord, repenting, and God's sovereignty. It's a, it is a tension in the scriptures. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I called you before the foundation of the world. And that's why we have theological camps that are trying to figure this all out and, and we butt heads. But the, the, the scriptures, it's a both and. The, the passport in through the door is stamped with repentance, belief in God, and God allowing you to come in. All of those are tied together. And there is no second chance when that door is shut. There is no opportunity to sway the master to say, well, you know, you're a nice guy. We hung out together. And that, that leads us to verses 26 and 27. Look what they argue. We ate and drank in your presence. That's huge in a first century world. We fellowshiped with you. We broke bread together. We vacationed together. I don't know, I can't use an analogy for today, but this is huge. When I traveled the Middle East, if someone had you in their home, that is a big to-do. You bring a gift, and this is a kind of a bonding of friendship. When Golda Meir, the prime minister of Israel, met with foreign diplomats, she did it in her kitchen. There's a reason for that. She's in charge, but she's also saying, I'm inviting you in. <laughs> but don't mess with me. <laughs> yes, she had a butcher knife. She was talking, no, I don't know. Goldemir. But the point is, you've come in for fellowship, and, and, and he's, notice they said, and you were in our streets teaching. In other words, you're one of us. Matthew in the parallel text tells us, he even draws a stronger connection. Some claim to prophesy, cast out demons, and do mighty works in Jesus' name. 
and whether the connection is real or merely a claim to be associated with such activity, we, we don't know. But what is clear, as Daryl Bach states in his commentary on Luke, outward contact with the message and the person of Jesus counts for nothing. Inward reception is everything. And sadly, I'm not naive enough to think, we've got folks who, who play the Christian game. Maybe you're a young person, your parents are saved, they're Christians, you come to church and you know how to at least look like you're interested. Or perhaps it's, hey, I belong to a particular group, a religious group. None of that matters. The person who is truly born again has the Spirit of God living within them, Romans 8. God's love in his heart motivates us to obey God and to be serving and loving others. It's like a student who audits a class. You can even grade their papers. They sit in all the lectures. They join in the activities. But at the end of the day, there's no credit for the class. There, there's no grade that's given in the, in the books, transcript. There's nothing other than you audited, A-U. <laughs> and that's the issue here. You can sit in the pew, but if there's not been a transformation in your hearts from Christ, it doesn't matter. And like these individuals who say, hey, I, I heard you teach. I was right there. We, we had baklava together, Lord. He's going to say, I don't even know you. Be gone. The plaguing question as I read through this text is why? Why would anyone not respond? Why would you wait? The door is open. I think the text is clear. Number one, salvation is not easy. It's a narrow gate. Think about this. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. You will be persecuted. It's not popular. No one wants to be going against the grain. But salvation is not easy. Secondly, there's a false sense of security that seems to hinder people from responding. Well, that's what we see here. We hung out with you, Jesus. We, but there's no intimacy. Warren Worsby writes, it takes more than reverence for tradition to get into God's kingdom. <laughs> There was a man in the church that I pastored who was on his deathbed, presented the gospel one more time, and he said, no, I, Jesus is a nice guy, but he is not the Son of God. I, I'm not going to buy that. And you ask, well, what do you hope is going to happen then when you meet God and you've not responded to his son? He goes, well, you know, I served in the military. I was in World War II. I've been faithful to my wife. I never cheated on her. And I belong to the Masonic Lodge. So I've been a good guy. So he gave us this laundry list of things he's done. That's not going to cut it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not the Masonic Lodge. Not all the great things you've done. Not in your service to our country. None of this. And so there's this false security. I'm fine. There's another point that's raised in the text of why there's a delay, and that is pride. And, and, and I think you see that even in the last verse. 
they think they're first, and we'll get to them in a minute, but there's this idea that, you know, we're in the crowd. Titus 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit, according to Paul's words in Titus. And finally, there's another point here, and that is they refused. That's Hebrews today. You need to respond today. So think about the responses. They're similar to what we hear today, isn't it? Well, in time, but not now, I'm going to respond to that Christian stuff. It wouldn't happen to me. God loves me. I'm overall a great person. I'm okay, or I really have no desire. All of those excuses will be regretted for all eternity. In fact, one of the agonies of hell, I would argue, will be the remembrance of opportunities wasted. <laughs> you had a chance. The door was open, and you didn't respond. And so in verse 27, we see this harsh words. There, there's no appeal for them to repent. Did you catch that? Jesus said, well, you know what? We're going to sing another verse of Just As I Am. Come on down. The bus is awake. No, there's none of this. There's, there's no, oh, I know you've had a rough life. I understand. We'll give you a little more time. Mm -mm. What are they met with? A severe rebuke. Depart from me. They are, he doesn't know them, and he's positively excluding them. The rebuke in verse 27 is from Psalm 6, 8. Anytime you see the New Testament or citing an Old Testament text, you need to go back to the Old Testament because it's the, the context of that Old Testament verse is vital in helping understand. Psalm 6, the speaker is someone who is suffering and subsequently vindicated by God. Jesus cites this text in most likely reference to himself. Jesus possesses ultimately authority to judge. Think about, he's being attacked from 951 forward. It's the religious rulers who kept saying, ah, no, that's a Beelzebub. What you're doing is not of the Lord. We question your teaching. I, there's, there's a constant drip and persecution of Jesus. And what the Lord is stating here is, no, 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 no. I'm the one who will be judging you. We see this later when Jesus is in the hearings, the religious rulers, the night before he's crucified. And they demand, are you the son of God? Did you make this claim? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you this. And he quotes from Daniel. He said, there'll be a day coming when the son of man will be coming down. And the whole context is, I'll be judging you. And the high priest understands fully what Jesus is stating. He rips his gown. Jesus stating I'm going to judge you. I stand in authority here, and the opportunity to respond is now. And so we see here three truths then that are spilled out in the last, latter part of the verses. We see, first of all, in verse 28, there are going to be some who are cast out. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase occurs only seven times in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and only once in Luke. It's always associated with darkness, fire, the place where hypocrites are sent, according to Matthew 24, a place where you're, you're being thrown out of the presence of the patriarchs or the final judgment. It's very clear. We're talking about eternal damnation is what the idea here is. And, and the question is, what do you mean by weeping? 
Scholars debate this. Some say it's a great sign of remorse. Oh, man, I wish I had done it. And now I realize where I'm at. I don't think so. I'm going to argue that what we see here is an indication of rage. You say, why would you say that? Well, the, the weeping can also be used to indicate that this is something that is very hostile. The weeping of anger. It fits with the gnashing of teeth. And we see this dichotomy. Those that are in the presence of the Lord at a banquet table rejoicing versus those who are miserable because they've not responded. One scholar writes, for those who oppose Jesus, their murderous anger against him would continue in eternal judgment and the rage will be established forever. Either way, it's not good. And the gnashing of teeth only reiterates this. This isn't weeping here in the sense of crying. This idea here is very clear. It was used of those that stoned Stephen in Acts 7. It's also used of, in, of David describing in Psalm 35 as enemies, as lions who gnash at me with the grinding of their teeth. <laughs> in the Old Testament, this is really interesting, often portrays the underworld as a monster with a gaping mouth. Isaiah 5 states, Therefore Sheol, that is the afterlife of the lower realm, has enlarged its throat, opened its mouth with measure. It's only fitting that those who gnash their teeth will find themselves in a place that is like a monster that was a gaping mouth. In other words, the people of the kingdom of God exhibit the qualities of heaven and correspondingly, the people of hell will exhibit its qualities. That's why one scholar writes, while heaven completes the joy of God's people, hell finalizes the anger of those who oppose the kingdom of God and its king. It's sad commentary. And you see this even in reference to, it says, when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and and all the prophets in the kingdom, but, but you won't be with them. How ironic! <laughs> They're the ones who claimed they were in the teachings of Abraham, that they had followed the Old Testament laws. In fact, they claimed because they were of Abrahamic descent that they had a guaranteed ticket into eternity. And yet, they're going to be standing look on the other side and, and, and not realizing they've not been in correspondence with the teachings of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. They will be excluded. Now, not all Jewish people will be excluded. We'll get to this in a minute. I would argue Israel's not rejected, but these religious rulers who have boasted that they are first, that they have a corner on truth, that they're the ones who are trying to trip Jesus and, and, and turn the crowds against him because they are of the school of Moses, because they're the descendants of Abraham, the Lord turns it all upside down. He says, listen, you're nowhere near where they are. In fact, you're going to find yourself on the outside looking in. And this kingdom, which is real, it's definitive, it's coming in the, in the physical notion, you're going to be cast out of this. And so some will be cast out. There's another truth that he gives in this whole story, and that is that many will sit at the table. This is the good news, right? 
It says that people will come from the east, the west, the north, and the south and take their places at the banquet. Woohoo! This is, you know, move over uh, Golden Corral. This is awesome. People coming to God from all corners of the earth. Psalm 107. Listen to this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, those he redeemed from trouble, gathering them in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. Not only is the Lord turned it upside down with this whole understanding of what's going to be in the eternity for these religious rulers, but he has just taken fingernails across the blackboard in their mindset because for them they are very ethnocentric in the first century the idea of gentiles being brought in what jesus is stating here is inconceivable david silva writes in his commentary jesus strikes at the heart of jewish doctrines of election as he claims that gentiles will enter the kingdom of heaven while the blood relations of abraham find themselves excluded matthew 7 jesus told the centurion remember that whole scene he declares that many other nations will be at the table with heirs of the kingdom are cast out and so jesus is stating you need to make every effort the door is narrow it's only open for a period of time what are you going to do with jesus the religious rulers who should have known better, who had all the credentials hanging on their walls in the office, miss the boat and stand condemned. Those who will claim, well, hey, I, I, I knew you. I, I was there on the steps when you were 12 years old and you were pontificating. I, I saw the miracle. And let's, let's take it to application. I saw you heal my grandmother when we prayed for her. I, I, I saw you work in my uncle's life. I saw you intervene in my life. And yet, if there's no response, the door is closed. And you will join the religious rulers here who have refused to respond. And Jesus will say, go away from me, all you evil doers. I have nothing to do with you. It's harsh, it's strong. And so there's three applications that are in your notes. By the way, the first to the last is the third point that Jesus makes in that text, which is clear. And notice, by the way, he says, some are last. There's a future yet for Israel. Romans 9 is clear, or 11 is clear on that. There's a future for Israel. But at this, at this time, there will be those who think they are first in line and find, hmm, no, not so. So what, if, what do we do with this? First of all, in your notes, I mentioned no self-invention or self-righteous act can have a positive impact upon the eternal state. Both eternal life and an abundant earthly life are found in the sufficiency of Christ and his sacrifice. The keeper of the gate is not asking you how you feel or what you think should be given to enter the gate. I mean, can you imagine your cardiologist is about to perform heart surgery and he or she sits on the edge of the bed and says, now, how do you feel about my medical procedure? Are you okay with how I'm going to proceed? I don't know. You're the doctor, right? If you're asking me these questions, I'm getting a little nervous. 
entering the narrow door entails self-denial and a recognition that our self-righteousness fails to satisfy a holy God. Brian Chapel makes this great statement. True repentance is a denial that anything in us ever would or ever could satisfy God's holiness or compel his pardon. That's why worry doesn't help. Hypocrisy isn't going to help. All the things that we've seen and what it means to respond to Jesus since chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke. We humbly concede that we can offer nothing for what he alone can give. Then we rest in his promise to forgive those who humbly seek him. Repentance, therefore, is fundamentally a humble expression of a desire for a renewed relationship with God. A relationship, Chapel writes, that we can confess can be secured only by his grace. For those of us who professed Christ this morning, and I assume most in this room have a relationship with Jesus May we not forget the awe and wonder of our Savior. It's so easy to forget it, isn't it, in the daily routines? And at the same time, may we not forget the disgusting stench of our sin. A second point. The narrow door prohibits baggage of sin and worldliness. (laughs) You're not going to get through with a ton of suitcases. That's a good thing. Or to forsake all and follow Christ. I remember years ago, we took a family vacation out west. Now, there was four of us and a Chrysler LeBaron, so small car, right? And I had the idea that when we were out west in Wyoming that I needed a cowboy hat. I was going to buy a cowboy hat, Uh, much to my parents' chagrin. So I was told that if I did that, I would have to carry it on my lap. Now, I'm not sure why I kept it in the box. Those boxes are huge. I should have put the hat on and rode home that way. I didn't. I had that big box with a cowboy hat in it sitting on my lap for all the way back to Indiana. It was a long journey. You're not going to take any of this. <laughs> it's, it, the narrow door is calling to release all. Beware of half-hearted discipleship writes a pastor from the 1900s, of compromise with evil, of conformity to the world, or trying to serve two masters, to walk in two ways, the narrow and the broad at once. It will not do. Half-hearted Christianity will only dishonor God while it makes you miserable. Philippians 1, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I hear and I will know that you're standing firm in one spirit, side by side, with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And third point, I see this text and it's a reminder that a periodical spiritual audit is vital to our ongoing spiritual walk. Even 2 Corinthians 13 says, put yourself to the test. Now, there it's talking about determining whether truly a follower of Jesus, and that's vital. But I'm talking to those of you who know Christ as your Savior. And I'm not talking about the spiritual audits that have the checklist. Yep, read the Bible today. Yep, prayed before my meals. Yep, uh, told someone I love them. No, 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 no. I'm going to give you three, I think, very vital and core questions. The first of these, to ask yourself in a spiritual audit, are you growing in your love towards Christ? Do you find yourself being drawn to him and loving him more and wanting to be in his presence? 
or has it just become routine? So the first question is, are you growing in your love towards Christ? Who cares how involved you are in the church? Well, we do, but we won't go there. Who, who, who cares how much you give to the church? What are you doing with Jesus? Are you growing in your love towards him? Second, are you convicted of sin? I would have a student in my office saying, I'm not sure I'm truly a follower of Jesus. And you start to probe and you realize there's a sin that they've, they've blown it and they're struggling with. My response is, I suspect you are his because the Holy Spirit's convicting. If you weren't having angst over the sin, I'd be concerned. So are you convicted of sin? Do you find yourself quickly confessing your sin and seeking God's forgiveness? Or do you stash it away? Satan loves secrecy, privacy. Are you convicted of sin? And third, are you seeking to serve Christ? Do you delight in walking in obedience to him? So, are you growing in your love towards God? Are you convicted of sin? And are you seeking to serve Christ? Those are the three questions that I challenge you this week to say, yeah, how am I doing in those areas? It's fitting today that we're having communion, isn't it? Because in, in many ways, as we have communion once a month, it is a spiritual audit. It should be. First, this is for believers. If there's not been a point in your life where you've said, yeah, I'm a sinner. I've crud. If you don't have one of these, they can help you. The bread and the wine are all together. But uh, if there's not a point where you're saying, yeah, there's not... I've, I've not gone through the narrow door. I've played games with God. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Bend your knee. But this isn't for you today if you don't know the Lord, because this is in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. If you know Christ is your Savior, then I, I challenge you, you need to spend some time, we all need to spend some time probing those three questions, because if you drink unworthily of this, according to 1 Corinthians, Paul says why some of you are sick and why even some of you are dead, because God is judging. This is a very serious, somber moment, <laughs> because it's saying, yes, Lord, I recognize, well, John 10, where Jesus said, I am the gate, I am the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved. I recognize you are the means for salvation. This is what you've done, and I need to have a life that's in accordance with that. So, do a little spiritual audit for a few minutes. Are you growing in your love towards Christ? Are you convicted of sin? And are you seeking to serve? Spend some time with the Lord and then we'll come and take this communion.
we marvel that you are the door. You are the good shepherd. They're wrapped together as seen in John 10. And you've reminded us that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, but that you have come to give us life and have it abundantly. How ironic that in denying ourself, we find riches unfathomable in you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made. Thank you for allowing us to even enter the door. And thank you for the promise we have that indeed there's a day when we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets. And in an incredible banquet table, we will celebrate you face to face. <laughs> Lord, help us in our walk with you. It's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to live the plastic life, the exterior where everything looks great. Yep, doing good. When deep down we're struggling spiritually. Help us to grow in our love towards you. Help us to see our sin for what it is and help us to serve you with our whole heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus took that bread, the one who said, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd. He said, this is my body which is broken, you do this in remembrance of me. Same way he, he took the cup. It symbolizes my blood. <laughs> the door was expensive wasn't it? It cost Christ's own life. Oh, how glorious a Savior. <laughs> and so he took that cup and he said, you know, this is a sign of the covenant. Demonstrates the blood that's been spilled so that we could have a relationship. And we can have a future together. So he said, do this in remembrance of me. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you that you've given us hope, peace, in a world that so desperately needs it. Help us to be good students, servants of you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.